Welcome everyone. We are continuing our study of Simha. We are in class number 46. We'll be giving this class for Refuah of Tamar Bat Nina. Bat Mira. Shishab Refuah Bekarov. Amen. As we left off last week, when we come to study the subject of Yisurin, of human suffering, it is impossible to study the subject before we understand the bigger picture of creation. Like I mentioned last week in the story, before we understand why people suffer or die, we must first understand why they were created and what is their purpose. So we're going to be spending the next few weeks, Be'ezrat Hashem, on the subject of the purpose of creation. I would just like to share with you a story just so we can go into the subject. It's a, it's a short story, and we need to elaborate a lot more on the story. But it's a personal story that happened to me years ago. I'm sure you've heard the story, I've said this many times. I only say it because I think it's a good way to enter what we're saying. About 10 years ago, I got on an airplane and I would say flying is a, is a treat for me. I enjoy it very much. The main enjoyment is not the flying, it's the time alone, the time you get to spend just focused on what I need to do. And probably one of the uh, biggest fears of going on an airplane for me is to know who's sitting next to me. Of course, we love all people, but there's certain times where you want to be alone, and then if someone is next to you that you're close to, or wants to be close to you, whatever it is, it, it, it just destroys the whole, the whole ride. So on that day, I got on the airplane, and I looked at the person next to me, and I saw that it was a stranger. Of course, I wished him a good flight, and that was it. We were on the plane together for about six or seven hours. A few hours into the plane ride, <clears throat> he starts looking at me or turning to me and it was clear from his body movement that he wanted to strike a conversation which I had no interest in doing. So I tried avoiding the uh, turning but it got to a point where it was getting to be a little obnoxious. So I turned and of course he was there to ask me. He says, you know, I'm sorry to bother you, but I've been watching you for the last few hours and just been thinking. You look to me like a scholar. I said, okay. Now, I don't know if the guy is Jewish, by the way. I still don't know. He says, you look to me like a, a man of God. I said, okay. 
that I've been called many names before, not that one. He says, so I, I'm thinking, watching you, he says, like, what, what does God want from you? What are you doing? Now, I can't imagine of a question that you don't want to be asked if you don't want to have a long conversation. You know, there goes the flight, basically. I, I can't ignore the guy. I don't think that would be such a right thing to do. So I told him that he's asking a very good question. I said, this would take a very long time for me to go through every detail. But I said, I'd like to ask you a question. I said, you're asking me what God wants from me. I said, tell me, are you married? So luckily he said, yes. I said, do you have children? Luckily again, he said, yes. Three boys, 12, 10, five. Those are the ages. So I asked him, I said, so tell me, you're a father of your children. What do you want from your children? I said, your children might actually be wondering themselves, what do you want from them? So he's thinking and thinking a little more. So after about a minute or so, I said, look, let me help you. I said, I bet that you don't want anything from your children. I said, I bet that you just want for your children to have pleasure, to enjoy their life. He says, you're right. I said, so tell me, what do you do for your children so that they can have a life of pleasure? So. In conversation, he told me all of what's normal. Baruch Hashem. He gives them a house to live in. He gives them clothing. He buys them food. He goes on vacations. He they give them tennis lessons. Whatever it is, he puts them into he puts them in school, pays their tuition. So I said, let me ask you the following question. I said, what would happen if one day? you would come home and you would bring your five-year-old this big box of beautiful Legos, like top of the line Legos. And he takes them from you and says, thanks dad, I really appreciate that. And you come home the next day after a hard day's work and you see your five-year-old on the floor playing Legos. He says, Dad, you have no idea. I've been doing this all day. I can't put it down. I love this Lego item. Look what I built. Thank you so much, Dad. I don't know what to say. I asked him, how would you feel if your son, five years old, is playing with the Legos all day and just having the time 
of his life. So he says, of course, he feels great. So I said, well, let me ask you this. What would happen if 40 years from today, your 45-year-old son is on the floor when you come home, playing the same Lego set, and saying, Dad, you have no idea what you've done for me. You gave me a 40-year gift. This is, un I cannot put this Lego down. That's what I love to do all day, every day. I just can't thank you enough. You're really the best father in the world. So how would you feel? He said, well, he says, not so good, obviously. I told him, but you don't make sense. You just told me a minute ago that all you want for your children is to have pleasure and enjoy their life. And now your son is having the time of his life building Legos all day, every day, and you're not happy. How does that make sense? So he looks at me like I just shocked him, and he says, just like that, looking at me, thinking about it, I say, you know what, let me help you. I said, the reason why you don't, you're not happy with your son of 45 when he's playing Legos and enjoying it is because you and I both know that there are many different levels of pleasure in life. Of course, for a five-year-old, playing Legos is probably the max. So you love it when your five-year-old is playing Legos. But when your 45-year-old is playing Legos, it hurts you. Because even though he is enjoying his 45-year-old life, but you and I both know that there's so much more to enjoy. There is so much more to build, like building a family, like building children, like building a real business, like building real buildings. There's so much more enjoyable pleasures in life than sitting and playing Lego. And since you love your son, you're not happy just having him having pleasure. You want him to have the highest possible pleasure that he can. So it upsets you when you see him on the floor enjoying a game of Legos. So he says, exactly. So I said, I'm gonna have a very hard time on a flight like this explaining to you all the details. But if you're wondering what I'm doing, and what does God want from me? So first of all, God doesn't want anything from me. He wants for me exactly what you want for your children. He wants for me to have the highest pleasure of life. He wants me to live with extremely high pleasures every single day, every single hour, every single minute. And there are different levels of pleasure. And I am involved in one of the highest pleasures in life. And that was the end of that conversation.
I satisfied him enough that he wouldn't ask me any more questions. But obviously, that conversation is not sufficient for anyone who knows, what am I talking about? What, what, what did I just tell, well, what did I just say to him? So I'd like to explain that conversation with a lot more detail. So why did Hashem create the world? For what purpose? Was he bored? God forbid. Did he need company? Did he need a challenge? Is this some sort of game? What is the purpose of the creator of the world who is perfect? We see his perfection in his creation. We see his awesome power. We see his wisdom, which is impossible for us to understand. What did he need from this world? What did he create this world for? Why did he make us for? The Ramhal, the author of the Mesilat Yesharim, in Derech Hashem explains that being that Hashem is a Baal Hesed, as we know, one of the clearest attributes of the Creator to us is His kindness. We see His kindness every single day of our lives, whether it's the breathing that He gives us, or the food that He feeds us, or the ability to enjoy that food. And all the things that we've been enjoying for so many years, while we certainly may have some complaints, nobody can deny the endless amount of pleasures that God has given us and continues to give us every single day of our lives. Hashem is a Baal Chesed. And the Midah of Baal, of a Chesed, if a person is a kind person, so there is something inside of them that wants to do for someone other than themselves. So therefore the creator of the world created a human in order that he should be able to do chesed for that human, in order to do kindness for that creation. And therefore he created man in order not to get from him, but to do for him that he should be able to reach the highest pleasures possible to a human being. Now, what gift would God give this human that would be befitting a perfect creator? Let me explain. If God is perfect, then His gifts also must be perfect. Me and you give gifts to people that we love, but not necessarily our gifts are perfect. Sometimes they're not needed. Sometimes they cause the person damage. You may give a person money, you had good intentions, but they spend it on alcohol or they go gamble with it. So your gift was not really perfect. You give a person a plate of candy, but then they have to go to the dentist a week later. So your gift was very thoughtful, but not so perfect. You may give them food and they're allergic to it. They get a stomachache. So you had good intentions, but your gift was not perfect. You see, the creator of the world, if he's perfect, then his gifts must also be perfect. If the gift is not perfect, that means he's not perfect. 
So therefore, if he's going to give this new creation that he wants to do kindness for, a gift, the gift would have to be a perfect gift. Anything less than perfect is not within the boundaries of who God is. So therefore, let's think for a moment together. What gift can Hashem give this Adam? What gift can He give him that would be perfect? Let's look around the world and see what is perfect. So when we look around the world and look for things that are perfect, we're only going to find one thing that's perfect, and that's the Creator of the world. So therefore, the gift that mankind would receive from the Creator is the ability to be close to Him, which would require us to be like Him. Let me explain that. The Pasuk says, in Devarim, Hashem says, what am I asking of you? What do you think I need from you? So he ends off, Lalechet Bechol Derachav. What I'm asking from you is to walk in the ways of Hashem, which means basically to imitate Him, Uldov Kabo, and to be close to Him, to cling to Him. We have to explain what that means. The Pasuk says, the Mesrari Sharim says, in the first chapter, he says, the greatest perfect life of a human being is what David HaMelech describes. Va'ani kirbat Elohim litov. He says, what's perfect? What's good? What's good is living next to the creator of the world. What does that mean? It's maybe a little beyond us right now, and I'm not going heavy into the subject. Maybe later on, we're not up to it yet. But you know, there is something that we feel all the time, something that attracts us to big people. We've seen people just feel in heaven because they're around a very famous person or a very wealthy person or a very powerful person. People will feel great just because they have that person's phone number. They will feel special when someone special signed their name in a book. I will never forget that 30 years ago, on a freezing day in New York City, and I was running 10 blocks to my office, and it was freezing. I could not wait to get there and feel some warmth. And I'm running down Fifth Avenue. And all of a sudden I see a huge line of people just waiting online. They look like normal people. And the line extended as I walked the whole block. I realized it was, a, it was an entire 
city block from 6th Avenue to 5th Avenue all the way around. People are waiting online. And I'm flying to get to a warm spot, yet I'm wondering what are these people doing? And I had to stop, even though I didn't want to, but I had to. What is possibly, what could possibly be happening here that they're sitting in the cold weather? So I asked one fellow, I said, what are you guys waiting for? He's oh, you know, there's Barnes and Nobles here. I said, I know, I see. <laughs> he says, well, there's uh, some, oh, I forgot the name of the author. Some author, very famous author, that is sitting in there and he's signing books. And look, I didn't have any appreciation for that author, so it was easy for me to say, are these people crazy? What do you care that that guy signs your book? What's the difference? And that you're waiting online in the freezing weather so he could sign your book? How does that make sense? Again, but if I thought that person was big, I probably would have done the same thing because I remind myself that I have a book in my house that is signed by Rav Chaim Kanievsky. And every time someone comes to my house, so I say, look at his book, and I open up and I say, look who signed that. So I'm no different than the guy in Fifth Avenue. Just he thinks that guy is big and I have other ideas of what's called big. But one thing that equates all of us is that we love to be around big things. Big people, big events. I one time visited somebody in their office and I see the beautiful office this man has and I see behind him all pictures, what it looked like to be his family. Very nice pictures. And then I saw this like huge, like hechal. You ever see a nice hechal in somebody's office? Beautiful. Glass and I don't remember exactly, it was beautiful. And I went to look at them and I saw in the middle of the glass, there was one used, dirty baseball. And I'm looking at it, and I'm thinking, okay, his father is like this big, the picture is this size, his mother is this size, very nice pictures, but when the baseball got like, wow, it was unbelievable, really, it was like front and center and big and colorful, and it was like, wow. So I knew this would be a conversation piece, of course. And I said, what, what is that? He said, oh, that? He says, that was the baseball that was hit in the 19, I forgot which year, something, World Series. The home run that was hit, it was that ball. So I went over and said, are you sure this, this is the ball? I said, this, I said, can I touch it? He said, no, 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 no. Like not Let's see. You couldn't get to it even. It was covered by all types of glass and things. 
an unbelievable thing. That was a big ball. And he felt very big around such a big baseball. You've seen people say, oh, I know that guy's secretary. I can call him anytime. Whether it's true or not, but they feel big. And it doesn't make sense. Think about it. Did my book change because someone wrote his name on it? Does it matter that I have the baseball that was hit in the World Series? Does it matter that I can call this person or that I'm with them for lunch? What is the difference? It's not so much about what they're going to do for you. That's not really what it is. There's this great feeling in being around big people. Again, whatever you think is big. There's a magnet that pulls us to bigger things. The reason is why we have that magnet is because it's supposed to pull us to real big things, like the creator of the world, to be close to him. Kirbat Elohim li tov, says David Melech. You know what's perfect? You want to know the highest pleasure in life? And it is living with the creator of the world. You'll forgive me? Because I'm saying things right now that may be beyond my head and your head. But I'd like just to describe for a moment, although I'm not there, and probably you're not there either, but it doesn't mean that we can't understand a little bit of what that is, and it certainly doesn't mean we can't strive for it. What does it mean to live with the Creator of the world? What kind of life is that? So it's very simple. When you live with the Creator of the world, A, you have no fear. How could you fear anyone or anything? The Creator of the world is with you. When you're with the Creator of the world, there's a certain pleasure of closeness that you feel that you could never and would never want to give away. It's a certain love that you develop and a certain relationship that you have that makes your life elevated to a much higher level. Everything you do becomes more elevated. Anywhere you are, the way you speak, the way you eat, the way you talk, the way you relate to any person, you're a different person. Just imagine one thing alone that you never get worried again. Just that alone is worthwhile. But there's just a small piece of the puzzle. You never get worried, you never get afraid, you never get nervous. And more. Because you live with the creator of the world. Now that's not an easy thing to achieve. And with God's help, maybe we'll get there if we start learning the subject. But that's a very high pleasure in life. But in order to be able to have such a reality, a person has to be of like-mindedness. Let me explain. It's very hard to glue two things that are not made of the same material. Things that are glued together need to be similar. For us to be living our life in the pleasure of basking of God, you have to be like Him. You first have to prepare the room. Before you bring a guest into your room, 
if you want them to enjoy it, you first have to prepare the room in a way that's appropriate for that guest. Before we can imagine that we can live with the creator of the world, we have to have the room ready, which means that we have to have a certain type of purity about us. We have to be kind. Basically, we have to be like him. Like the Pasuk says, Vehalachta bidrachav. Halachta bidrachav is a mission of life. It means you try to emulate the Creator. You try to be exactly like him. That's what Hashem tells Abraham Avinu. He tells him, Hithalech lefanai tamim. Walk before me, watch me, and you will become a complete person. The Torah commands us, you know what you're supposed to be doing in your life? You and me were at Selem Elohim. We're an image of God. That means whatever God has, any attributes He has, we also have it. And therefore we need to elevate ourselves to be godly. And when we do that, the relationship, it's possible to happen. I'll give you an example of what it means to copy Hashem. We see Abraham Avinu in this week's parasha, coming up. Abraham Avinu is out there running to help strangers. Strangers he never met and probably will never meet again. He's running after them on a very hot day. He's a very old man. He's a sick man. And he's running after them. And not just running, he's begging them to help them. Not only help them, he goes out and he cooks for them. And he does things for them that we wouldn't make for our closest relative. He went out there slaughtering cows, fresh meat, fresh bread, everything top of the line. For who? For three strangers that he doesn't know and will never meet again. You know, Abraham Avinu didn't have a Torah. He wasn't looking at Shulchan Aruch. He wasn't reading the Hafez Hayim's books and saying, oh wow, Hesed, it's important. Let me go give it my all. You know, me and you today, we struggle to help people in the best way that we can. And we have Torah, we have Sfarim, we have books, we have all types of people inspiring us, and we're still struggling to figure out how to do it. And this man has none of what we have. How does he know that you're supposed to do this? Where did he learn this from? You know, when you see someone doing something extraordinary, you always wonder, where did they get that from? Like, people don't do that. Where did they learn that from? And then someone will say, I remember his grandfather. He was like that. Ah, that makes sense. I remember his mother. She was like that. Okay, it makes sense. When you see someone doing something amazing, you always wonder where they got it from. It's not the regular run-of-the-mill things that everyone does. It's not a better way of doing something. It's a whole different world. Where did they get that from? How did they think of that? How did Abraham know that he's supposed to do this? If we were watching him, we would have thought this man lost his mind. He's running after people to beg them, to help them. What is he doing? The answer is that Abraham understood such a simple fact of life. That me and God are similar. 
and I watch him and I try to be like him. And if I watch the world that he created, like I said earlier, the clearest thing that any human with some eyes could see is the tremendous kindness that Hashem does for the world every day, feeding the entire world, including all the animals. Whether it's the sunlight, the warmth, whether it's the energy, whether it's the different tastes. You know, Hashem didn't just give us medicine to eat every day or a pill to eat every day. He gave us all different types of foods so that we could enjoy breakfast in its own way and lunch in its own way and dinner in its own way. And not just one type of dinner, thousands of types of dinners. Every cookbook that you'll find, you'll see, wow, more items, more ways to cook. Because there's endless ways of kindness that Hashem wants us to enjoy. Not just grapes, but also oranges. Not just oranges, but also tomatoes. Not just tomatoes, but apples too. Just apples alone, there's over a thousand types of apples, I believe, in the United States alone. Different types of apples, different textures, different tastes. You like it sweet, you like it sour, you like it red, you like it green. What do you like? We got it. Blueberries and strawberries and raspberries. We have all different types of tastes and everything that you could imagine under the sun. Hashem didn't forget the spices either. He didn't forget about the oregano. He didn't forget about all the different spices that you probably use every day. Guess what? The supermarket didn't think of those. Those are all grown items that the Creator thought about even before there was a human on the planet. He prepared everything. We could survive without tomato sauce. We would be fine. Nothing would happen to us. But we would be missing one less pleasure. We could survive without salt, but the world wouldn't be as tasty. We could survive without sugar in our tea, but it would be missing a little something. The creator of the world thought about every single item in every single way, large and small, so that we would be able to enjoy it. Not only did he give us the food, but he gave us the ability to enjoy the food. He gave us taste buds that would be able to taste and enjoy. He gave us not only our bodies to enjoy, but he gave us a world that's beautiful. The green grass that you could just sit on and be comfortable. A grass that makes it cool around you on a hot day the beautiful blue skies, and sometimes the cloudy skies, each one with its own beauty, the beauty of snow, and the beauty of winter, the beauty of summer, the beauty of the mountains, the beauty of the oceans and lakes. The world is a gorgeous world in every way, and we get to enjoy that. Abraham saw that. He saw a world where the creator of the world, he saw himself actually as the guest of the Baal Habayit. He was honest. He was honest enough. He was a very wealthy man. But never did he think that he made his wealth. Never did he think that he made the fruits or he made the animals that he owned. He understood what we all know. 
that we're a guest in this world and we have an owner, there's a Baal Habayit, there's a host. And what does this host do for his guests? That's what Abraham studied. What does the host of this world do for me and like me, others? How does he treat us? What does he do for us? Now we understand why Abraham Avinu is running after people. And he wants to slaughter an animal for each one. So each one can have a tongue and mustard too. Maybe he didn't eat mustard, but for his guests. God also doesn't eat, but for his guests, anything. That's called living like Hashem. Vehalachta bidrachav. To look at him and to say, wow, that's what I got to do. I have to be like him. You know, in fact, by Yehezkel, there's a famous vision of Yehezkel and Navi, where he saw, I don't know what this means, it's way beyond my understanding, but the part I do understand a little bit, it says that he saw God sitting on his throne, and he describes the throne, which I'm not going to describe, so I don't understand it. But then it says, and on the chair, he saw demut, he saw an image, kemare adam, alav milma'la, he saw what looked like a human face on the chair. You know what that means? It means that the way Hashem's vis- visually to us on that chair looks like a human. That means a human is a godly being. A human is capable of being like Hashem. When we read on Yom Kippur the 13 attributes of God, when we say them after Anna every day, we are saying Hashem is compassionate. What does that mean, He's compassionate? Meaning, why are we saying that? Because it's a reminder the way we need to be. But just because He's compassionate, what does that have to do with me? Answer is, we're the same makeup. We are Helek Eloah Mima'al. We are a piece of Him. And if he's compassionate, then we can be compassionate. If he's emet, then I can be emet. If he's kind, then I could be kind. If he's patient, I could be patient. Everything that he has, I have as well. Maybe smaller, maybe not as big, but I'm a tselem, I'm an image of the Creator. And my mission in this world is to be like Him. The next time I get angry and I lose it, I became less godly. The next time I was selfish, then I was not like God. And when you're not like Him, then you can't expect to live with Him. You cannot live with someone who's not like you on this level. I'm going to tell you something that women can appreciate. I think more than men. We know that a woman, Torah tells us, that when a woman gives birth, so there's a certain period of tum'ah that comes just from birth. It's not nida, it's just a birth tum'ah. For a boy, 
the Tum'ah lasts for one week. For a girl, the Tum'ah lasts two weeks. Anyone reading that would say, oh, sounds like women are Tameh. You have a girl, now you're Tameh two weeks. A boy only one week. But on a deeper understanding of this, you realize it's the opposite. What is Tum'ah? We know, we've heard the word Tum'ah. For example, we know the classic example of Tum'ah is a dead body of a person. Why is a dead body have Tum'ah? Where did that Tum'ah come from? Before A minute before, he was not Tameh. Now, he's Tameh. Where did that come from? The answer is that wherever you see Kedusha, wherever there's holiness, and there's a vacuum where the holiness leaves and leaves emptiness, in the place of the Kedusha comes Tum'ah. One more time. The bigger the Kedusha, when it leaves, in its place becomes very Tameh. That's why people say, how could it be that the Jewish body is the most Tameh item in the world? How could that be? Does it make sense? I thought we're supposed to be holy. Aren't we supposed to be Kadosh? So why are we the most Tameh? Answer is, because the most Kadosh, the most holy, when you empty out the holiness, you become the most Tameh. That's the way it works. That's why in the morning, we wash our hands in a certain way to get rid of Tum'ah. Because when we sleep, Hazal tell us, it's one sixtieth of death. Sleep is like a little bit of death. If you see people while they're sleeping, you understand that. They're not, they're not up. Some people I think is more than one sixtieth. I believe it's maybe one, one half. Not, not they cannot hear anything. You can make noise, you put on lights, you, there's alarms going off, nothing. They don't hear it, they don't see it. You tell me that's 160th? But anyway, at least 160th. So in the morning, when, what, why, that means a little bit of our neshama left us. When a Jewish soul leaves the neshama's kadosh, what about us is Kadosh? Our neshama. When that neshama leaves, Tum'ah comes in. Well, at night also, when we sleep, a little bit leaves. One sixtieth amount. So therefore, when that leaves, there's Tum'ah. So therefore, in the morning, when we wake up, we try to get, we get rid of that Tum'ah through washing with a cup. Bottom line is, when there is the exit of kedusha, comes in Tum'ah. So by childbirth, that's what happens. You see, a woman who's carrying a child, usually we have a neshama inside of us. But when you have a child, that's another neshama. And when you give birth to that child, that neshama has left your body. And therefore, there's a vacuum that's created where Tum'ah comes in, and there's a process of getting rid of that Tum'ah.
So when you have a boy, you only have one week of Tumah. But when you have a girl, you have two weeks of Tumah. Because a girl inside the mother is actually more Kadosh than the boy. What makes a girl more Kadosh than a boy? So A, women have more Bina, we know that. They're smarter, they understand things better. You're welcome. <laughs> but I once saw perhaps a deeper reason. And that is that a woman could be like God even more than a man can. Because we can be like Hashem, again, compassion, kindness, truth, patience. So can women. But there's something that women can do, like God, that men can't. And that's to be a creator. And that is closer to the creator. And for that, you become extra kadosh. The more you are like Hashem, the more kadosh you are. And therefore, the woman, the girl, has a bigger kedusha for that ability to create. Bottom line, bottom line is, Halakhta bidrachav. Halakhta bidrachav means that we need to walk in Hashem's ways. I'll give you another example. I gave you example of the Hesed of Abraham. One of the ways that we emulate Hashem is the way we think. When you look at something, do you see good or do you see bad? Do you have an ayin tova or ayin ra'a? Well, how does, Hashem, how does Hashem look at this world? Hashem told us. He says, I see this world as tov me'od. It's a beautiful world. There may be things you don't understand in this world, but it's a beautiful world. That's what Hashem thinks. So therefore, to be like Hashem, if you want to be like Hashem, you got to think like Him. Thinking like Him means you understand it's a beautiful world. Thinking like Hashem means you know right from wrong. That's why we learn Torah. When we come to learn Torah, we're not just spending time doing a mitzvah, which we are. We're not just getting smarter. We are training our minds to think like Hashem. That's why the Torah gives you so many stories and tells you Hashem's opinion about those stories. Oh, Sedom, their selfishness, very bad. Oh, wow. That means selfishness is not a good thing. I need to think that way. I need to know that kindness is a great thing. Did Yaakov do the right thing in that situation? Did Abraham do the right thing in that situation? How about Yosef? How each personality, each situation, Hashem reports to us and says, great, or not so good. Should have been more careful. Not the right way. Too stubborn. Every story that we learn in the Torah is not meant just so we can come up with Hidushim. People say, you have a Hidush? Could you tell me something? A Hidush? 
So sometimes we almost feel like, okay, we're here to tell Hidushim. We're here just to tell things that people don't know. But the purpose of learning anything is like the Ramban says. The Ramban says every time you learn something, you have to get up and say, how does that apply to me? When we sit and learn Gemara, and all of a sudden we're trying to understand why Hashem said this. And we sit for hours trying to figure out, why did He say this? What does He mean by that? And we're fighting. You could sit in a Bet Midrash and you could see people regular fighting, screaming at each other. No, that's not what it is. Look, I'll prove it to you. You know what happens? When you fight about what God thinks, you start to think like Him. You start to see the world like Him. You start to see something and say, oh, that's great, that's beautiful. Oh, that, that's terrible. How did you know that? How did you know to look at that thing and say, that's beautiful? And when you looked at that, you said that wasn't so beautiful. There's somebody else saying the opposite. How did you know that? A person could look at Sinaud and say, gorgeous, wow, beautiful. And someone could say, ooh, that's horrible. So which one's right? I don't know. We've got to ask the Creator. What does He think? In anything and everything that we do, we have to ask. One of the things about Hashem is that most of the things that He does for us, we don't see. Do you know that? We, we've been eating for 30, 40, 80 years. We still don't know how it works. There's a lot of kindness happening when food goes down our throat. Many, 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 many thousands of things are happening. Many parts are happening, many things are coming, many messengers are taking and distributing. We don't see any of it, we have never seen it. And it's been happening for 50 years, 70 years. Most of the things that Hashem does for us, we don't see. He allows us to see a little bit so we could learn from, but most of it, we don't see. What do we learn from that? That as much as you can, don't show what you're doing. Sometimes you have to show to teach people, yes. But as much as you can, do it quietly. Baseter. Where did you learn that from? The creator of the world. To think like him, to act like him. Even Shabbat. What is Shabbat? Shabbat is us resting like Hashem. We don't understand what that means, to rest like Hashem. Hashem never needs to rest. He doesn't get tired. But that's not what resting of Shabbat means. And by the way, this can explain a big mistake that people have when it comes to Shabbat. They can't understand why touching a light or a light switch is a problem of resting. What is the problem? How much sweat and toil did it take to push a button? Carrying a, a table is way more taxing than your Shomer Shabbat. You could carry a table, no problem. Carry it for 24 hours. Go do laps around your house. Go up and down Shomer Shabbat. You're, you're doing good. I mean, probably not the smartest thing to do, but your Shomer Shabbat. You're resting. You are called resting. But if you just push the button, you're called Mehalal Shabbat. Now you're not resting. How does that make sense? It bothers us. But then when we understand things a little better, 
it doesn't bother us anymore. Because the resting of the Creator that we're trying to emulate, because we rest like Him, His resting wasn't about being tired. The resting of the seventh day was that He stopped creating. He stopped making things. And therefore, we emulate Him by stopping to create. That's what it means to rest. It doesn't mean to sleep. It means to stop creating things. So pushing a button could actually be creating much more than you could imagine. You have no idea what you're creating. You're creating currents. You're creating electricity. You're creating light. It's not about sweat. To emulate the Creator in every way. One of the ways that we see in the creator of the world is consistency. We say, El Melech Ne'eman. Hashem is consistent. Notice, every time you jump, gravity pulls you down. Gravity is a creation of God. But it works every time. Every time you boil an egg, it works. Never happened that the egg says, Nah. I'm not doing it. It doesn't happen. The creation of the Creator is consistent. He's ne'eman. He's true. He's loyal. He does it every time. He doesn't change. He continues to be consistent in what He does. Therefore, consistency is a way of Hashem. Being reliable. Being true to your word. Keeping your promise. That's a godly thing to do. Breaking your promise, that's opposite. And many such examples. I will stop giving you examples for now. The Pasuk says, but the purpose is not just to be like him. Because when you start to be like him, then then you could live next to him. Then you could spend your life in his presence, which is the highest pleasure in life. But you have to first make yourself a home for his presence. You cannot invite him to your home if you're selfish if you're sheker, if you're not reliable, if you're not consistent, if you're not compassionate, if you're not kind, there is nowhere for him to enter your life. You first have to become like him, and then you will be able to enjoy his presence. Now, go back to the Ramchal. Why did Hashem create the world? He created the world because he wanted to give us the biggest pleasure in life, which is a relationship with Him, which can only happen when we become like Him. When we become like Him, then we will be able to have this devekut, this unbelievable life in this world, and of course, for eternity. Here is the million dollar question. That is the perfect gift. So we're in this world to be godly 
to be just like him by watching his creation like Abraham did. And for us, luckily, we have a Torah. Clear. This is what he thinks. This is what he does. This is what he likes. So the question is, why is it that he put us in this world with an opportunity to be like him? He gave us the opportunity to be like him. Why didn't he just make us like him? It would have been so much better. Look at us today. We're struggling to be like him. We're struggling to be kind. We're struggling to be compassionate. We're struggling to be happy. We're struggling to be satisfied. We're struggling to be emet. We struggle with so many things. You know why we struggle? Because He made us only with the opportunity to be like Him. He didn't make us like Him. He didn't just say, okay, let me create a clone just like me. How awesome would that have been? That we come into this world and we're just like Hashem as much as possible. Imagine you come in and you're the kindest, you're the most decent, most honest, most clear, most samaya. Godly. God could do that. Why didn't He make us just like Him? Exactly like Him. Why did He say, okay, I'm going to make them with the opportunity to be like me. Isn't it better and more guaranteed that He will make us from the get-go like Him? Then there'll be no issues. Nothing to worry about. We would never suffer. We would never struggle. And some would say, but then you wouldn't earn it. Who cares about earning it? What does it matter? At the end of the day, I become like God. Awesome. Now that God did it the way He did it, we're losing people left and right. This one doesn't know how to live life. This one is unhappy. This one is struggling. This one is arrogant. This one is selfish. This one is this. This one is sheker. This one is... You know why that happened? Because Hashem gave us the choice. And unfortunately, we often choose the wrong way. Why do you do that? If He wants to give us the perfect gift, which is to be like Him, why didn't He hand that to us? Just give it to us. Why put us in this predicament where we have to choose to be like Him? And says the Ramhal so beautifully. The Ramhal is such an unbelievable. Look how beautifully he says it. I'm going to say it in my own words. He basically says that if the whole purpose is to make you like him, if he would give you to be like him, then by definition you're not like him. I know you didn't understand a word I just said. No, I'm going to repeat it again. If the purpose is that you should be like Him, if that's the highest gift He can give you, is to be like Him, if He would make you like Him, then by definition, it already means you're not like Him. What do I mean by that? Let me explain. Hashem is a giver, not a taker. Hashem doesn't take from anyone. He only gives his greatness comes from within. Nobody gave it to him. Nobody made him kind. Nobody made him truthful. 
Nobody made him compassionate. Nobody gave him the gift of patience that would make him a taker. Nobody gave him anything. Imagine he would give us kindness and give us emet and give us compassion and give us patience and give us wisdom and give us simha. Imagine he would give us all that. Sounds great, but by definition, that means we're not like him. Because that means we were given something. And if you're given something, then you can't be like God. Therefore, Hashem thought of this unbelievable system. It's such a genius system. If you think about it more and more, when you have a free moment, you'll realize it's such a genius system. Where He would put us in this world with all the capabilities of becoming like Him, but yet He would put us in a world where we would be able to choose to be like Him or choose not to be like Him. And then if we would choose to be like Him, then it would be no one giving it to us. Well, He gave, he gave us the opportunity. That's unavoidable. We're not like Him exactly. But as much as possible, we want to be like Him. So how do we do that? By earning. Today, if you became a kind person, that's to your credit. If God made you kind, that's to His credit. Now you're kind. Because you could have been not kind. You know, the greatness of Moshe Rabbeinu is only great because he could have been Hitler. That's right. Moshe could have been Hitler. It's free choice. The greater you become in good, you probably will be greater in bad. Hashem just gives the energy. He gives the opportunity. Where you take it is up to you. You need to figure that part out. Because if He would give that to you, then He would not be helping you. He would be making you an anti-godly person. Because now you would be a taker and by the way, you know and I know that it feels much better when you earn something than if you were given it. It's obvious. A million dollars that you work for tastes so much better. Even if it's sitting in the bank, it just tastes so much sweeter than someone who gave you a million dollars. Even though that makes no sense because it's the same million dollars. Why should it matter and the answer is very simple. Because when you make something of yourself, that's called godliness. Even if it's money. If you're given something, so you're a taker. Taking takers don't feel good. You know why takers don't feel good? Because it's not godly. So Hashem did us the biggest favor. The biggest kindness. Which is not to be like Him. Because then we're not like Him. He put us in a world with the opportunity of a lifetime. The opportunity is you come into this world and you have all the tools and you and I can become like Him in every way. And that will be the greatest gift that God can give us on this planet. In order to do that, there has to be a system of free choice. A system where people are capable 
of doing good, and of course, they're capable of doing bad. Because if you're not capable of doing bad, and you could only do good, then it's not free choice. There has to be a system where there could be a little cloudiness, but if you look good, you'll see clarity. It's an amazing world. Where if you really look good, you could see clear what your mission is in life. But if you choose not to look, you can be lost in a cloud and you'll never see. It's up to you. You see, if Hashem made it very clear to everybody, then there's no free choice again. It can't be everything clear. You know how often sometimes we say, God, why don't you just make it very clear to me? Well, if it was very clear to you, then there's no free choice. Imagine every person who's Mehalel Shabbat gets struck by lightning right away. Imagine what would happen. There would be no Mehalel Shabbat. And we would say, oh, I chose not to be Mehalel Shabbat. And we say, oh, no, you didn't. That's not called your choice. When you saw what happens, then you made a calculation. It's not a choice. A choice means you chose it. It means you did it without anyone forcing you. Forcing could be someone tied your hands or forcing means someone gave you such a clarity that you're forced to do it. Just like you would never jump off the Empire State Building even if you had the choice to. But that's not called you made a good choice. When you get home, they say, oh, good choice, you didn't jump. It's not a good choice. It's an obvious choice because you have such clarity about what's going to happen if you jump that you don't jump because it's clear to you. Therefore, if Hashem would make the world so clear, then there's no more free choice. So therefore, part of the system of this world is to ensure that we always have free choice. That it's never too clear, but clear enough if you want to see. It's never going to be obvious unless you look. It has to be that way. There's never going to be reward and punishment in the way we would like it. You see, we would like it that when we do something good, we get rewarded right away. I had a beautiful tefillah this morning. Ah, such a gorgeous tefillah. I walk outside and I'm waiting for the gold coins to fall into my lap. I just had a crazy prayer. I never prayed like that. God, come on. I did good, no? Where's my reward? And when we see someone doing something evil to us, we say, oh, that guy deserves it. Watch. When he walks out, he is going to slip on the ice, break his legs, and go to the hospital. And he deserves it. And then he walks out and wins the lottery. Two billion dollars. <laughs> and you say to yourself, huh, how does that make sense? I just did great. I fell on the ice. The guy just hurt somebody. He won the lottery. How does that make sense? Well, guess what? Imagine it didn't happen this way. Imagine every time you did something good, you won the lottery, and every time someone did something bad, they slipped on the ice. You know what happens? In probably a day, no one would ever do bad. You know why? Because they have no free choice. Because clarity is the enemy of free choice. When you're clear about the consequence, so you don't have free choice. By the way, I'll tell you a little nice thing. I don't know if you'll understand it fully, but I'll tell it to you. I heard once a beautiful line. That when we come into this world, 
We have free choice. But so many things, our job is, or our great accomplishment is, to slowly give back our free choice. What does that mean? It means that we're not clear about something. When I was 12 or 13, so I wasn't clear about certain things. So it was a struggle for me. Should I help some? Should I help this person? Should I give charity or not? I don't know. I'd rather have the money myself. Why should I give it? I work hard for it. He should let him work hard. If God wants to give him, he could give him. I have all kinds of thoughts about why I shouldn't give, but maybe I should give. And I'm struggling. I'm not clear. Should I give? I shouldn't give. When my mother asked me for something, should I go honor my mother? I, I don't know. Not sure. Is it really important? I mean, I like the couch. I'm very, very calm. I'm very happy. I'm enjoying myself. Like, why is she calling me anyway? It's annoying. I wasn't clear. That clarity, or sorry, excuse me, that lack of clarity gave me free choice. But as I got older, I realized, one second, my mother asked me something? Are you kidding? What an opportunity. That's an item. I can't wait for that. I got more clear. I don't have free choice anymore. Because I want to do it. You think Hamavadia had free choice to learn that day or to watch the football game? You think he woke up one day and said, you know what, the football game's on. <laughs> Going to learn. Struggling with it. Not sure. What should I do? Of course not. Even I don't struggle with that. I used to struggle with that because it wasn't clear to me. But as I get more clear about my life and my purpose and what I'm doing here, then I start giving my free choice back. I became clear about that. I know selfishness is not the currency here. I know that. If I have an opportunity to help somebody and I could, that's what I need to do. I'm clear about that. So we come into this world with a lot of free choice because we're a lot confused and we don't know anything about anything. And the simplest things may confuse us. And slowly, hopefully, slowly, as we learn more and we understand more and we experience more and we open our minds more, we start realizing, what do you mean? That's the obvious choice. Of course, that's the way I'm supposed to do it. Of course, the right thing to do is that. Of course, I stay away from that. That's called giving your free choice back. Because now you're clear. It's not a choice for me today. If I have 10 minutes to open a book and learn something. I'm not doing it because I have to. It's obvious to me. That time is precious. If I have 10 minutes, that's precious. What am I doing with that time? 13 years old? 18 years old? I don't know. Killing time was also a very strong possibility. How do I kill another hour of my day? How do I just hang? What does it mean to hang? The definition of hang means kill time. That's what it means. That was an option years ago. Today, it's not really an option. I'm way clearer than that. I gave that back. 
Imagine by the day we check out, we give all of our free choice back because we have such clarity. But then it would be our decision to give it back because we did it. The gift of godliness has to come from within. It cannot be given to us. It cannot be handed to us. And that is why Hashem made us in the way that He did with all the choices available to us. And a little bit of confusion along the way where people doing good seem to be getting hurt and people that are doing bad seem to get everything. It seems that way at least. And you never know by the way because the one that you think is rolling, if you looked inside his house, you may not be so impressed. If you looked inside his live, you may see a whole different person. How many people have you heard about in your life that you thought were rolling? Just yesterday, just yesterday, there was a person, he wasn't by me, but somebody else was by me, telling me about another person who in my mind, I thought, had the life. Very good man observant, God-fearing, but I thought, like, in the world of getting things, he had the life. He had everything he wanted, super wealth, by his parents and his in-laws. He has everything he wants. People are struggling to pay bills, he's not. People are struggling to buy homes, he's not. Cars, no problem. He's got it all, beautiful. What could be missing? And this fellow talking to me said, by the way, you know, I'm not gonna say why it was brought up. It was brought up for a purpose. It wasn't just like, let's show that out, let's talk about people. Because you know, you know, he struggles very much, this guy. I said, what? He struggles very much for the last 10 years. If you ask me who's like the top, I said, that guy's the top. He struggled with what? What can he struggle with? I said, he has everything. No, he's a very difficult child, it's not 100%. And, and his wife became not 100% because of the child. And, and the home is not really, he needs always help. He's, he's not. And there you go again. Thinking that someone has it all. But they don't. You know what's going on in people's lives. But at least externally sometimes we see great things by people doing bad things. Bad things by people doing great things. Well, that's part of free choice. That's part of us choosing our derech in life. It's us choosing godliness. Given godliness is not godliness. That is the purpose of creation. That's why it says in the Pasuk, it says when Hashem created the world, He saw a world Vayar Elohim et kol asher asa. He saw everything that he made. Vehine tov me'od. He says, this is tov. This world? Wow. Ki'ilu. As if Hashem is talking to us about what he thinks. He's telling us. It's a per the word tov means good. In our vocabulary, when I say the word tov, I say that. He asked me, how's that boy? Tov. You know what it means? Good. But you know when Hashem says the word tov, it doesn't mean good. When Hashem says the word tov, it means perfect. When I say tov, it just means relative. It means compared to the guy in the street, he's good. That's all. Compared to other people who aren't so good, he's good. So if I tell you this boy is good, you should go ask me again. 
What does that mean, good? Good what? Because everybody's good relative to others who aren't as good. So you're never lying when you call someone good. Never. Because relatively speaking, there's probably always someone worse. So when we say the word good, it's always a relative good. But God, when He talks, He doesn't compare. He's not comparison shopping. When He looks at something and says, this is good. That means it's the ultimate good. That means it's perfect. So when Hashem looks at the world, He says, ah, this is tov. This is a perfect world. Nice. But then He says, tov me'od. It's very perfect. Now that makes no sense. Because you cannot be very perfect. Just like you can't be very honest. When someone tells you, I'm very honest, you know what that means? That means he is a shakran. He's a liar. That's what it means. You can't be very honest. It's impossible to be very honest. It's not one of those things. You can be very kind, but you can be very honest. You're either honest or you're not. So when you're very honest, that gets us thinking that you're not so honest. So you can't be very perfect. That's impossible. Because perfect means perfect. How could you be very perfect? How can God turn around and say, oh, this world is very perfect? That's impossible. It doesn't make sense. Comes the Midrash and says, oh, you know what tov means? Tov means the yetzerah tov. Okay, whatever that means. Not for today. Our good inclination. Tov me'od, what's very perfect? Our yetzer hara. Our yetzer hara is very perfect. Yetzer tov is perfect. But yetzer hara is very perfect. You know that Yetzirah is trying to push you and pull you to be unhappy and to think about the same problem you had for the last five years and never to forget about it? You know that guy? You know how you can't get things off your mind? You know who that is? That's your Yetzirah. That's the guy. He's your Yetzirah. I was telling a story last night. A man over here, one, this, a few days ago, was telling me that one of his friends was suffering. Suffering. Because... Some wealthy person owed him a lot of money and is not willing to pay him. And this is going on for months and months and years. And every time he sees the guy, he's always, and he's always down from it. So one great rabbi was visiting once and he told him his problem. So the rabbi told him, let me tell you something. You have to stop going out for dinner with this guy. You have to stop going with him on vacations. And you have to stop walking to shul with him. How do you expect to forget him if you take him everywhere you go? The guy says, Rabbi, are you kidding? I stay so far from that guy. I don't call him. I don't talk. What dinner? I would never have dinner with him. I would never walk with him. I would never take him. He says, everywhere you go, you take him with you. You go for dinner, he's right there. You're flying, he's with you. Even if you go private, he's right there with you. <laughs> Wherever you go, he's with you right there. 
Yesterday's problem is right there with you. You're never going to forget it. Because you take him with you everywhere you go. You know who does this? That's called Yetzir Hara. He, says the Midrash, is very perfect. Wow. Hashem says, I'm so proud of that creation. Very perfect. What does that mean? It means like this. It means that Hashem wanted to give us a gift that's perfect, which is Hashem. So being like Hashem really is perfect. But what makes our perfect really perfect? The Yetzirah. Because only through the Yetzirah can the perfection that He gives us come from us. So therefore, while He could have made us perfect, He gave us a Yetzirah that the perfection should be really perfect. That it's us that's doing it. And it's only through His work that tries to deceive us, tries to upset us, tries to make us feel unwanted, tries to make us feel down, tries to make us feel that we want to give up, tries to make us feel that we can't conquer, tries to make us feel that we can't grow, tries to make us feel lazy. That's all Him. But lucky for us that He's there. Because only through Him can we achieve perfection from within ourselves. This is the purpose of creation. In order for the Yetzirah to do his job, Hashem has to put us always in a position where we could choose good or we could choose bad. You know, I'm going to share with you something that you've learned for many years. One of the first stories you ever learned, and I ever learned, was a story of Moshe Rabbeinu going to Paro to prove to him that he is indeed the messenger of God. How are you going to prove to this atheist who walks around saying, I'm God, how are you going to prove to him that not only is there God, but that he sent you to him? How are you going to convince him? Well, Hashem tells Moshe, no worries. He tells Moshe and Aharon, no worries. When Paro will tell you, Give us some amazing sign, something awesome to prove, something that nobody could do, to prove that you are the messengers of the Creator of the world. Hashem says to Moshe Aaron, and when he asks you that, take your stick, throw it down, and it will become a snake. That's pretty awesome. I bet Moshe and Aaron were pretty impressed with that. So they went on their way and they did exactly what God told them. And Paro reacted exactly like God said he would. He says, who are you guys? Why should I listen to you? Who says? Show me that you're saying the truth. And they did exactly what God said and exactly what he said happened, happened. But shockingly, the Pasuk says that Paro calls his people and says, Guys, do you think you could do this? And they said, Yeah, I think we could. And they took their stick, they throw it down. The Pasuk says, Vayihiyu le taninim. 
Now there's snakes all over. What is the purpose of telling Moshe to do this miraculous sign? Wasn't the purpose of this miracle to convince Paro'ah that he is the messenger of God. So what then is the purpose of doing the miracle and then having somebody else do it? Guess what? It happens again by Makkah of Dam. You know the story. We all learned the story many times. Hashem tells Moshe Rabbeinu, we're going to make blood from all the waters of Egypt. You show them. What happens? Pasuk says, after they did that, the wise men of Egypt, the sorcerers of Egypt, did the same thing. What is going on here? Why would God do that? Sefardaim, by the frogs, same story. They also got frogs. They couldn't take the frogs away. That he needed his help. Only by kinim, by the lice, they tried and they couldn't do it. And then the hartumim said to Paro, it's Ba Elohim, this is God's finger, we, we, we can't do this. But what was the whole lead up to that? Why would you send a message and then ruin the message? How does that make sense? If you're trying to convince Paro, so convince him. The answer is, this is a world of free choice. And Paro too has free choice. Yes, if he was shown a miracle that nobody could do, so you took away his free choice. So therefore, they're going to do it too. But then where is the sign then? Well, the sign is very simple. Because the Pasuk says that Moshe, his stick, ate all the snakes. Like the Sephorno says, because his snake was real. Their snake was just an illusion of a snake. That wasn't a real snake. By the blood too. It says, when, they, when Moshe and Aaron made the water into blood, it says, asher bayor meta. Which means that the fish in the Nile died. Why do we need to know that? The Orachim says to tell you, this is real blood. This was not illusion blood. The Egyptians made fake blood. They made real blood. There was a way for them. Paro could have known the truth if he really wanted to, but there was enough room for him to say, nah, what's the big deal? I could do it too. Okay, it's not exactly like you, but I could do it. And as he got more cloudy and more cloudy and more cloudy, then even as the messages became clear, that's what happens, by the way, when you don't get the message the first time, you get cloudy. You don't get it the second time, you get cloudier. By the third time, you get even more cloudy. It's like a drunk, an alcoholic, a gambler. Think about it. The first time they drink. Ah, should I drink? I shouldn't drink? I don't know. Maybe, yeah. It's a choice. You know what? What's the big deal? I'll have a drink. The second time, I'm not sure. Let me have another drink. By the 10th week, by the 10th month, there's no more free choice. Done. Your, whatever clarity you used to have 10 months ago is gone, way gone. Today, someone could show you a drunk 
in the street, making a fool of himself, killing himself, destroying his family and his children, and has no job, and, 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 and you'll be like, so what's the problem? That's the great stuff that I enjoy. I love that. I've heard those words. I agree with you. Listen to these words. I agree with you. I see what you're saying. But I can't give up my alcohol. Now, how that makes sense, I don't know. How could you agree with me and then say, I can't give that up? Because you become so cloudy that you can't see straight anymore. But that's your free choice. And that's what Hashem does with all of us. He's constantly checking the equilibrium, the balance. It can't be too clear. It can be not clear enough. There has to be a way for you to know the truth. And there has to be a way for you to make an error. Is there a better example than by Kiriat Yamsuf? Do you ever think how nuts the Egyptians had to be to go into the Yamsuf while it's split? What's wrong with them? Did they not see the sea split? It didn't split for them. It split for the Jewish people. They already experienced 10 Makot. What are they doing? But guess what? Hashem allowed that mistake to happen. Because if you look in the Torah, it doesn't say the sea split. It says that Hashem brought a major windstorm that night. A major windstorm. And that windstorm split the water. So that, what? why do you have to bring windstorm? Just split the ocean. Split the sea. What, what do you need a windstorm for? God doesn't need windstorms. The answer is that people could look and say, oh, oh, it's just a windstorm. There's room, I mean, when was the last windstorm that split the sea? Exactly when people needed to cross it? When did that, okay, you're right. If you looked a little more into it, you could see clarity. But if you choose not to look, you can, and you'll have a backup with you. Somebody says, oh, it's a windstorm. That's not anything real. They went right in. Free choice is constantly being measured for every person on their level. And that's why Hazal tell us, the Yetzirah always gets stronger. Because yesterday's Yetzirah that you beat is no longer a choice for you. You gave that one back. It's easy. You used to worry, ah, I want to eat cheeseburgers. You used to, God forbid, not the people here. But there are people out in the world who grew up in secular homes. They, they always ate cheeseburgers. They loved a good deal at McDonald's. One ninety nine for fries, drinks, and a super double cheeseburger. I mean, what, what could be better than that? One ninety nine, the whole thing. So they loved the taste. They loved the service. They loved that it was anywhere you wanted to be. Any airport, any mall, auto life. And now all of a sudden they got a little more clarity. You know, the Jewish soul doesn't do well with that kind of food. But now they walk by McDonald's and they're struggling. Should I go? Should I not go? What should I do? I don't know. They walked in once. One time they stopped. One time they walked in. And then finally, after some time, they got away from it. After a year, they walked by McDonald's like we walk by McDonald's. We don't, we don't get any kind of yetzerah in McDonald's. That's not where we're struggling. Nobody here said, oh, I wish I can go in right now. 
But don't think that when you beat McDonald's, the head says, okay, I'm done. Now, now, here's a new item for you. Hadesh. He takes you to new places. You'll now struggle with other things. You know, the Rav Dessler, and I'll end with this. Rav Dessler says it so beautifully. He says that the world of free choice works by something that he calls in Hebrew, Nekudat Habehira, which means the point of free choice. What does that mean? The point of free choice. So let's compare it to a war, or maybe better yet, a tug of war. Easier for us to understand. There's one person on the right and one person on the left. And they're fighting for the rope. The rope is very long. He gets, he starts with half, and he starts with half. Now, where and what are they fighting for at any given minute? So most people will say they're fighting for the rope. They're not fighting for the rope. At any given minute, they're not fighting for the rope. And I'll tell you why. Because the rope that's by me, you can't get it right this second. And the rope by you, I can't get. But we're always fighting for the middle. That middle is what we're fighting for. The one I have, the part of the rope that I have is safe by me. The part that you have is impossible for me. We're fighting for the middle. Now, if I get the middle to my side, now that middle is mine. But now there's a new middle. The part that I couldn't get before, now I could. And that's how life works. For example, is the guy living in Wyoming, in a barely knows he's Jewish type of place? Does he have free choice like the guy living in Jerusalem who grew up in the house of a rabbi? Do they have the same free choice? How could they? He grew up with Torah and mitzvot and kedushah. And this guy doesn't hardly knows he's Jewish. Could they have the same free choice? Of course not. They don't. But but both of them could end up in the same place for the good and for the bad. For example, the guy in Wyoming, nothing against Wyoming by the way. I'm not sure if you Jews in Wyoming. I love Wyoming. Today you can get sued for that. I don't. Understand. Just an example. Okay. Guy in Wyoming, he's eating in McDonald's with no conscience, no guilt. Doesn't never praise, of course. No mitzvot. He's not putting on tzitzit. He's not doing nothing. Zero. He's not learning to. He's not going to shoot at night. He's not doing that. That's way behind. That's part of a rope that's not available to him right now. It's not even relevant to him to go learn Torah. It's not relevant. But there is a point that is relevant to him. Maybe it's when he got invited to a Friday night dinner by somebody. He knows that's a nice thing to do for a Jew. He knows Friday night dinner is something. He's struggling. Should I go? Should I go? For him, that's all the choice. He's going to drive there. He's going afterwards somewhere else. That's not the point. But right now, that's his point of free choice. Everything else, praying, learning, kedusha, is not relevant. 
His struggle right now is this, the Friday night dinner. That's his struggle. The guy in Israel, he's not struggling with Friday night dinner. That's already in the bag. He's not struggling to go to shul. In the bag. He's not struggling to keep Shabbat. In the bag. He's not even struggling to learn Torah. In the bag. He's struggling. When I learn, do I review? Do I care about what I learn? Or do I just learn, heck, like everybody else, just learn and go home? Or do I care about it? That's where he struggled. Way different point than this guy. But guess what happens? When the guy in Yerushalayim decides he's really not going to learn so seriously, so then he goes down. His new choice becomes, eh, you know, I'm not going to come so early to tefillah anymore. He starts coming late to pray. Another notch down. And then he says, you know what? Anyway, I'm coming late. I'll just pray at home. Of course, always pray. Tefillin, 100%. Okay? And then he starts praying at home. And after a while, praying at home, and how long that lasts, he starts, he prays the two-minute prayer at home. But he always puts on tefillin. And then at some point, this whole thing's not worth it. What, what am I doing? And at some point, that guy in Yerushalayim could be struggling about a cheeseburger in McDonald's. It's a reality. The rope kept changing because he kept losing the point. And that took him to the worst places. The guy in Wyoming went to a Friday night dinner. Good choice. He went a second time and then they told him, you know, why don't you come next time? We, you know, we go to shul before. Why don't you come? I don't know. It's not for me. I'm not so comfortable. I, I don't do that. He goes. He hears a drasha. He hears something about tefillin. What is tefillin? What is that? And he goes. And he learns something. He hears about a class on Tuesday nights every month for people. Okay. And all of a sudden, he's struggling to go once a month to go on a Tuesday night. The guy's rolling. He's moving up the rope. That guy could end up being the chief rabbi, the top Talmud Hacham in all of Israel. Rabbi Akiva went on that road. So yes, while none of us are struggling in the same point, we're all struggling in different points, but we're all struggling. The point of Bechira is always changing for each person individually. One of the great miracles of free choice. Hashem has for every person what they need in order to be able to have a test, but it shouldn't be so clear. To be able to do it themselves, that it shouldn't be too hard, it's impossible, but not too easy where it's not a test. And that's how our life goes. And as we do better, we start giving back part of the rope. This part I got, I'm not struggling with that anymore. Now I'm struggling with other things. And we start graduating and graduating and graduating. And the whole rope is ours. The entire rope becomes our rope. Because we are the ones who chose what to do and how to do it. And it became ours. We became godly ourselves. That is the purpose of the creation of this world. That we should be able to have the greatest pleasure in life. While I know that we can't imagine it right now, and we're going to start learning next week about pleasures, that's going to be our study, because the world of pleasures is very complicated. Don't think that you know it. Don't think you understand it. Don't think it's obvious. You probably might be thinking, pleasures, what do I study pleasures for? I know what pleasures are. I know how to get them. 
I, what do you, what, does this study call pleasures? You have to learn about it? And the answer is yes, you have to learn about it because there's so much in it that you will need to appreciate as you learn and you will realize, wow, I can't believe I missed that. How did I not know that? can't believe I'm living 90 years. I didn't know that. We must learn the subject very well. And then after we learn it, maybe we'll appreciate what it means that the highest pleasure in life is to live with the creator of the world. But bottom line is, when Hashem created the world, it was not for Him. It's for us. That's what I told the men on the airplane. It wasn't for us. It's for Him. It was for us. And the purpose is for us to have as much pleasure as humanly possible. And the greatest pleasure there is, is to be like Hashem. And in this way, we will be able to be actually close to Him. Think of the greatest song in our history. Hazal tell us all songs are holy from Tanakh. But there's one that's super holy. It's called the Holy of Holies. Which song is the Holy of Holies? Shir Hashirim Asher Lishalom. You open it up and you realize it's a song about people too, a man and woman who are in love. That's the Holy of Holies. That's the Kodesh Kodashim. A love story? The answer is, there is no greater way to define the love story of the great person with his creator than to describe the love of a happily married couple. That's a little example of the pleasure of what it is to live with Hashem. There's something very beautiful and something very pleasurable about it. Again, we'll do a lot more on that much later, but that's the purpose of creation. Now we built the first stone. We have the first foundation. And Be'ezek Hashem, next week we'll go into much more detail into all the different pleasures in life that Hashem made available to us. Baruch Amen Amen.